My first guest on the show is education policy analyst from the Reason Foundation, Christian Bernard. Christian previously joined me on an episode of a podcast that I co-hosted, Fox and Klein. We discussed a few recent headlines about our education system at the time. I enjoyed our first interview and got such good feedback that I thought he'd be a great way to kick off this new show. We did two parts with Christian, and part one covers K-12 through finance, school choice, and a proposal Christian has called Income Share Agreements. Check out the show, enjoy it, and share it with everyone you know. Um, with Christian Bernard, uh, first guest uh, with me on my uh, own interview show, uh, education policy analyst for the Reason Foundation, also a contributor for um, uh, Young Voices. Hey, Christian, how you doing, man? Oh, busy, very busy, yeah. So our team, we get like, basically we're connected with like a big network of uh, think tanks, um, and we'll get calls and people, and basically like, funders are like drop everything you're doing right now and like we're gonna go to oklahoma next week and or whatever wherever it might be right now it's oklahoma and like help do school finance form there so it's like you know you'll have your schedule and then something like that will come up and then you just have to stop everything and like do kind of some really quick research and then go and tell policymakers what to do so now the, t- now, 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 the team that you uh, were talking about when you and I were uh, kind of like going back and forth with text, you said that your team was working on um, like different kind of policy proposals and ba- your, your team was focusing on research um, on K through 12 finance uh, on states around the nation and Arizona was one of them. Uh, can you just talk a, bit, a little bit yeah. about that um, and uh, like just what your team's up to and what you're trying to get out of it? We basically do research on state uh, and district-level school finance. So we look at the way uh, states fund school districts and then the way those school districts fund individual schools. Um, So kind of our overall objective is to make it so that dollars, like education funding, pretty seamlessly follows kids wherever they go. So kind of a key idea is what they call backpack funding. So a kid, no matter where they're going to school, um, gets the same amount of money to go with them, and then wherever they go has that money to educate them with. Um, and the other principle is that, like, um, more dollars follow kids with higher needs. So a kid who's low income or with who um, English language restrictions receives additional dollars um, to meet their educational needs. So what we do is we look at states and how they're funding those their kids and, you know, whether it's fair, um, why, it, you know, usually it's unfair. Usually there are all these little, uh, the formulas tend to be very complicated and all these, all these complications will add these effects where kids aren't funded fairly based on kind of really uh, random things. Uh, uh, often, uh, property wealth plays a big part in that. Um, but basically, such, such, such as like where you, you wanna, such as where you live at, like income like levels. Yep, exactly. So, like, in, if you live at a district that has low property wealth, right? So, when they do their property taxes, they really don't raise much money. Um, often, that can make it so that your schools are more are, are poor, more poorly funded. Your kids aren't being funded the same as, say, a kid over in a more wealthy district. So what that does, though, is that makes it so that kids aren't all worth the same. So, like, if a kid wants to go to school in another district, the districts often will shut those kids out because they're not bringing the same amount of money along with them. Um, Plus, it's just not fair. You know, there's no reason why 
you know, like in Arizona, I've observed this, like you have kids being funded $2,000, $3,000 less um, in one district compared to a neighboring district. So um, it's a major problem. It's, it's Nobody likes that. It's a bipartisan issue. I mean, people on the left point out that it's often the most disadvantaged kids who are getting funded the least, right. which is true. And then people who are on the right or libertarian who want there to be school choice and competition, um, they're like, well, if, you know, if dollars aren't following kids, then there are restrictions on their freedoms of where they can go to school. So um, it's a pretty important issue. Um, and then education is generally like 30 to 50 percent of a state budget. So it's a huge, it's always a huge issue for legislators because it's often the single biggest pot. Um, so that's what our team works on. We do a lot of research and op-eds. We're uh, very supportive of school choice, but we also want to make sure all kids are being funded equally, so kids in public schools and uh, charter schools, um, all that. Now, the like the dollar amount that you're saying funding for each student, is that um, like the one that you were saying, like there, it, it's a difficult formula to, to basically come up with, like however mm-hmm. much money that the school has in revenue per student, is it basically like a simple, not mm-hmm. like a simple, simple formula like that, but is it basically like how much money the school has per student? Yeah, so, well, it's complicated because... <laughs> Unfortunately, like, for example, like if you were in if you were in an upper income, if you're in an upper income neighborhood and the school brought in a lot of money, is it basically like, okay, on this student, uh, we're, you know, we're dedicating a dollar amount such as seventy five hundred dollars per school year, you know, just a round number. And then in a lower income, the school doesn't have much money. So that same age group, same grade and everything, they're getting twenty five hundred, for example. Yeah. So, yeah, that's. Generally, like that's a just kind of a, a hypothetical right, example right, right. of what's essentially happening. Kids aren't being funded the same. Now the problem is, like we're often just talking about different districts. So uh, what's actually being spent on the school level—that's a whole other can of beans. Because like once the district gets the money, and usually in most states the money is based on like how many kids they have, uh, their grade level, maybe how many of them are in special education, stuff like that, which is good. But then the way they divvy up those dollars from school to school is very often not actually uh, related to the kids who generated those funds in the first place. You know what I mean? So you might, a district might have, you know, let's say five schools. Let's say two of those schools have pretty high poverty rates. And so the district gets a lot of money for those poor kids. But then the way the district actually allocates the dollars to those five schools you you often find they'll allocate the most money to their uh, lowest poverty schools, right? So, I mean, there's all these, like, weird hiccups in the way kids are funded that cause these disparities. And, um, you know, I mean, families are mad about it, right, because it affects, like, the quality of their kids' education. Absolutely. And the, the state's not treating them all the, the same, you know. So, um, it's it, and again, it's a bipartisan issue. It's an issue that... Uh, folks on the left and right should really care about right so. i mean because like and we all say you know when it comes to like climate change it's always about all right our kids future i mean the education mm-hmm. i feel doesn't get enough of you know i mean it mm-hmm. doesn't get enough of a reaction in you know in reality when what it all what it all boils down to is it doesn't get the same reaction as climate change is going to kill us all in 10 years 
Um, yeah. So something that um, it, this was, you know, something that just happened was it yesterday or day before? Day before, um, Cory Booker mm-hmm. dropped out of the race, um, and that was kind right. of perfect timing, as we said, was because he was the only Democratic mm-hmm. candidate who supported school choice. Now, what mm-hmm. did now, what was Cory Booker's like stance on it, or currently and? Going from here, where do the 2020 candidates kind of stand on it? And is there going to be any movement on Mm -hmm. policy change or where are we at? Yeah, so Cory Booker was unique in that, like, he seems to fall in line with the Democratic candidates on most of the issues they covered during the debate. But when you look at his history, Cory Booker is like a really uh, unique candidate. So when he was mayor of Newark in the late 2000s, Newark, New Jersey, um, he grew there charter sector massively, their charter school. So he's a big believer in charter schools, which when you compare that to other 2020 candidates, I mean, um, I think the middle of last year, all the candidates went to a national education association, which is the nation's largest teachers union um, event where they all, most of them condemned charter schools or at least for profit um, charter schools. Whereas Cory Booker has a history of really fighting to support charter schools. He also, um, interestingly enough, has had a long relationship with current Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Oh, really? So he partnered with Betsy DeVos, yes, in her uh, big school choice advocacy organization, the American Federation for Children, a lot in the past. Um, but, I mean, in recent years, he's had to be really quiet about it because, um, obviously, that's really controversial amongst Democrats, and it would not have voted well for him during his race. Obviously, that's a moot point now because he dropped out. Right. Um, do you still think he's a, I, bad, I, st- right? I do. I do still think he's in the running for a VP, though. Possibly. I mean, I can see him being a pick. He's a very charismatic politician. He's, by many accounts, actually one of the best public speakers of all the candidates who've been running or who ran uh, for 2020. Um, so I think he'd be a great VP pick. I, I mean, I still think that Cory Booker just like should have had a better campaign than he did. Yeah, I, think I don't he think he was, he wasn't aggressive opponent. enough. Yeah. I don't, I mean, it was the aggression point. There were a couple political missteps for him that made him seem to kind of come off as insincere. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I think he's a young guy. He's a, he's a Rhodes scholar. He was a really successful mayor. Um, and he, you know, is generally more like market friendly than a lot of these other, uh, kind of far left democratic candidates. So, all those things would have made him actually a pretty good opponent to Donald Trump. And uh, if he becomes a VP pick, I, I won't be surprised. Now, um, oh, so, sorry, but, Well, I was just going to say, in the, the other Democratic candidates now, they basically all fall in line in that they're pretty skeptical of charter schools. Like Bernie Sanders wants to put a moratorium on the expansion of all charter schools. He doesn't want there to be any federal funding for charters. Um they pretty much just kind of fall in line with what teachers' unions want them to do. Um, and then they want to increase funding for Title I, which is a federal um, education funding program for um, low-income kids. So, I mean, they, they say that they care a lot about education. I think their main problem is that they are really um, not interested in kind of like innovation around education, but the schooling models. They Their kind of main focus is like, bolstering existing public schools, increasing their funding uh, in a variety of ways, Um, you know, raising teacher pay across the board. Uh, Again, stuff that sounds great, but 
you know, I think that there's all these other directions you can go in in making um, different types of schools, right, or giving, say, districts or schools the uh, a more autonomy to pay teachers what they want to pay them. Um, stuff like that, I, you know, the 2020 candidates are pretty much universally not really interested in. Cory Booker had a history of being very open to innovation um, and stuff like that. He even pushed for private school choice in New Jersey at large. So, um, again, kind of a shame, um, but that's where the candidates are. They don't talk much about K-12 education either. The big focus seems to be on higher ed, which obviously matters, but, I mean, K-12 is a huge factor. The quality of your K-12 education is a huge factor as far as whether you can get into a good college, your financial aid, all that stuff. Um, I mean, we spend across across the nation $1.3 billion a year on remedial education at colleges, which is education um, on K-12 level material in college courses that students should have learned. We have a lot of students taking remedial courses because they're not even ready for the college level. $1.3 billion a year across all universities? No, across, yeah. Yeah, so it's, wow. um, it, I mean, you're talking about universities footing the bill for the, the K-12 system failure is quite a, quite a, quite a uh, expensive bill. I mean, so. like, that that's astonishing when you make something, like, I mean, that's obviously, I mean, to me, that's surprising because that's not a statistic you even hear much about, but that's a very interesting statistic mm-hmm. when you're trying to say, all right, where does all the funding that we have for schools or that is supposed to go to schools, where is mm-hmm. it going? And when you look at $1.3 billion, now you look at it across <laughs> all the universities, it doesn't seem like a whole lot, but mm-hmm. that's just stuff wasted on stuff that could have been, you know, taught, and like you said, in the K-12. through Yeah, and not to mention just like what the colleges are spending on that, but when you make kids, like say their first year in college, take a bunch of course, you know, coursework that they should have learned in high school and that's not actually getting them closer to getting a degree it also decreases their likelihood of finishing so that's another massive cost right you make kids take these courses that they should have get this material that they should have gotten in k-12 and then you even decrease their likelihood of ultimately getting their degree and getting the benefits of that degree so those are those, there's probably a lot more of a cost to the remedial education um, and ultimately, a lot of it falls on the K-12 system failing those kids. In addition to the educational way that it kind of sets you back, don't you think it could, you know, that could set you back, you know, socially and basically as a person? Because when you when you go to college, mm-hmm. that's supposed to be your next phase. Now, if you're spending your first yeah. year at college, basically catching up on all the stuff you're supposed to do on senior year, you're not ready for, you know, you don't have that coursework that's ready for college. So doesn't that really set you back in college kind of like a year or at least like, you know, a half semester back? Or is that something that's kind of like naive to say? No, it does. It does. That's exactly what it does. I mean, that's the, that's the reason. Because eventually you're going to have to double up on the courses. Years to graduate. Yeah. That's why they're taking a long time to graduate. That's why a lot of them are like, well, I mean, my first year in college, I'm taking algebra courses, right? Like, and a lot of them decide, well, this is not really worth it if I have to pay all this money, you know, and so it really, it has huge, it's a huge setback, right? And that's why you have kids graduating late, not starting really in the labor force at their degree until they're in their mid-20s, and often not graduating at all. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, I, I think the K-12 issues are um, often overlooked, and then especially school finance. I mean, 
again, the way that we're funding our schools, that's kind of the, that's a bedrock issue because it's going to have implications for the kinds of teachers you hire, the kinds of support staff, whether, you know, what kinds of athletics you can offer. I mean, your facilities, all this stuff um, is affected by school finance. Um, but it's a, it's a kind of nerdy, wonky issue, so people uh, tend to not pay as much attention to it. And it's definitely hard to boil down into, you know, sound bites in a democratic debate, you know. Absolutely. Now, just now... Uh, you cool if we shift to like higher education now, like the student, you know, student loans and, and colleges and whatnot. Yeah. So, yeah. um, in a recent piece you had in the uh, Orange County Re- uh, Register about um, obviously the, what we spoke about um, our first discussion, what we've been talking about here, but for a higher education, um, something I found interesting and wanted to get kind of more kind of in depth for was um, it was an idea you had of something called income share agreements, which is um, mm-hmm. like a financial aid tool that could be used as a, you said, um, in your article, you said a fixed percentage of a student's future income and it would change incentives right. um, of preferred degrees and certifications. Um, income share agreements. What kind of uh, like, what kind of proposal is this? And uh, like explain that a little bit. Yeah. Income share agreements are an idea that um, people have, it kind of been pushing a lot and as alternative to as an alternative to traditional student loans. So rather than taking out kind of a fixed loan amount, that's not really going to vary based on what you study, right? So if you go to American University, for instance, and you get a certain scholarship and the rest of it you have to pay out of pocket and with loans, regardless of what you study, you're taking out that amount and you're paying that back that amount. Right. Um, but obviously the problem is you're going to massive amounts of debt in many cases. So kind of the idea as an alternative that people have floated is instead of getting a loan, you have some kind of like actual like private or public investors invest directly in your education. And then you pay back a fixed percentage of your future income. So like the, one of the advantages of it is like, say you study something, you know, you get your degree and you end up actually not getting great jobs, right? Or you just don't make a lot of additional income from your degree. Well, if you, since you're just paying back a fixed percentage, you know, if you had just taken out a loan, whatever you're making, you're paying the same amount, right? Monthly to pay off your loan, but the income sharing, right? Like the amount that you pay varies based on future income. So if you're getting financial aid that way, you're going to make your decisions differently. And the people investing are going to be have more skin in the game, right? People investing are going to be slower to be like, yeah, I'll put the bill for your theater degree from a, this small liberal arts college that's expensive right. and has a very low wage premium. Um, and say they'll, so they'll say demand a, a higher percentage of your future income to make that investment back. Well, then kids are going to look at that and be like, well, I don't want to pay – say 15 to 20 percent of my you know future income for the next 10 years annually for my theater degree when i could get say an engineering degree and pay back only eight to ten percent of my annual income so that it it has kind of puts puts everybody in a position where they're making i think more clear-eyed decisions now this is an idea that's been tried at purdue university um it hasn't caught on uh, so that there's only a, a, a fraction of the kids at Purdue who are using ISAs. Um, but I think the big part of the reason for that is you still have these federally subsidized student loans, right? Um, 
so to actually make income share agreements a possibility writ large, I think you need to start rethinking where all these public dollars are going. Should all them be going into student loans or should you have um, maybe privatize some of the lending so that, you know, private lenders can just also be investors and invest in these income share agreements. Now, who's subsidizing this or like who are the lenders? Is it are was it like CEOs of companies or is it like someone that basically says like, OK, this person had a high GPA in uh, math, you know, they're, you know, advanced in math yeah. and I'm an engine, you know, I'm an engineer. So I basically I'm going to fund his college. Is that is that is that basically? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, it could be anybody. Yeah, it could be a CEO. It could be a bank, right? A private bank could say, "Wait a minute, there's actually some." There's a, it's a pretty, you know, they could look at it as actually a pretty sound investment. Invest in kids who are going to study computer science. Um, That's actually and interesting. So it's very maybe interesting. They, can look, they could look at say certain schools that are pretty cheap, like a community college or a state school, and say wait a minute, these computer science kids here are, you know, making pretty good money right out of the gate. The university itself is actually pretty affordable compared to many others. So we could just pay for their education up front, and then they can just give give us a future share of their income. And for the kid, it's like, I know I'm paying this percentage of my income. You know, they're not looking at a fixed amount. They're just saying, okay, I know if I'm not succeeding – you know, the burden's not going to be super heavy. And if I'm doing well, you know, those investors are reaping the rewards for investing in me. So it could be any, it could also be public too. You could have, you could have, you know, the federal uh, lenders go instead to do federal ISAs, right? That would be an intermediate step. Um, Their incentives are obviously a, a little bit different. You'd want it to make sure they're making sound investments as well, because you know, public officials don't always make great decisions with what they invest taxpayer <laughs> money in. But, I mean, that's the, the idea is that you can have all sorts of different entities uh, pop up and do this. I mean, it's similar to the way that, like, most banks don't do student lending anymore. But a decade plus ago, um, there were banks that were doing student loans, and they were actually making pretty reasonable returns on those student loans. So I... I could see an ISA as a potentially even greater investment, right? Because you're not just looking at the cost of that college. You're looking at a kid and the likelihood of their future success. Right. So. Now, how much, yeah, now, now I mean, does that policy, policy proposal have any legs or is that just something that, um, like, along your way you've kind of found, is that something that is even in talks, being spoken by by anybody, even in, like, Congress, the Senate, like, you know, is that is that a no. because it's it's a very interesting the way you explained that is like you said it's pretty yeah. safe investment in this, investing in a person if you think you know because whether they work for you or not or end up going into the field of study that you end up studying or not your wages are your wages and you you're still going to just need to pay that yeah. back. Yeah, it's 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 not an idea that has actually gained traction in like in like Congress because again, like the it would be a pretty significant overhaul of the current um, financial aid system. Um, plus, I mean, like there's there are again all sorts of concerns um, around IS. I mean, they're really popular among, I would say, like, intellectuals and especially folks at, like, liberty-leaning think tanks. But they're also popular at, like, the left-leaning Brookings Institution. You have scholars there who actually are pretty um, interested in the idea of doing an income share agreement uh, program. 
Um, and you do have like a current, like for kids who are struggling to pay back their loans, a lot of them can apply for what's called income-based repayment, where they repay their loans um, as if they had kind of done an ISA, but they're still just repaying their actual student loans. Um, so, I mean, again, it's an idea that's um, very hypothetical and uh, it's popular, I would say, amongst people who really want to see more systematic reforms in higher education. I mean, another, I think, an alternative idea that I mentioned in the piece that I could see happening happening more readily than, you know, an ISA overhaul would, would be just having kids take out insurance policies on their loans. So in, in addition to your loan, you, take, you pay for some insurance on that loan. So in the event that you don't finish school, you don't, you're not, you know, drowning in debt for the next 10 to 20 years. Right. Because I think the thing about student loan debt is the people who are really hurt the most by student loan debt aren't the ones with these massive amounts. They're the ones who took out, you know, a decent amount of money but didn't get a degree and therefore aren't making any wage premium off of a degree but still have to pay back for, you know, three, four, or five semesters that they actually did in college. Absolutely. So if you had them take it, pay for some kind of insurance policy on that, they would at least have the peace of mind to know, okay, this isn't working out, My grade, if, or my grades aren't good, or just some better opportunity comes along. I won't have to, you know, think about the twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 in student loan debt kind of hanging over my head. Um, that's an idea um, I think that Congress should pick up. Again, it's been something I think has been floated in committees, but um, the student loan system, I, people are pretty um, risk-averse about it in Congress right now. There's, plus, there's a lot of other things, such as impeachment, that are taking up a lot of time in Congress. So. It, it, it really is unfortunate that, you know, with stuff as simple as this, you know, within our borders going on and even just within it being an election year, it's like there's so much other noise going on that can does anybody mm-hmm. even really know what, uh, you know, Amy Klobuchar's education policy is? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the debates don't right. really provide much. You know, we only get what they're no. what they want us to see on Twitter and their campaign pages and whatnot. Yeah. So um, it is frustrating in that light that a lot of these people are, you know, a lot of them talking about the big picture and, and, you know, we just need to take out Trump. But in reality, for myself, where my vote is up in the air, I'd like to know some of their education policies. I'd like to know where they stand on this. You know, like Elizabeth Warren, obviously, is someone who's irrational, who says, I'm just going to wipe out, cancel all student loan debt. You know, you can't like Mm -hmm. that's not a realistic policy proposal. It's not a realistic solution. Well, yeah, and you'll find, too, I think part of the reason you can't decipher what they actually think about this stuff is because they don't want to be tied down to any one plan. They have said, you know, I think most of them have said they want to increase Title I funding and teacher pay, right? But that's actually, like, it's not, like, like it's expensive, but it's not a very, like, adventurous, like, reform. You know, if they're not going to touch charters, they're not going to tackle any of these other issues as far as, like, teacher retention or like the way teachers are paid over the course of their whole career. They're not exploring issues like that at all. You know, even in their longer, you know, policy briefs that they put on their campaign website. So um, I think that's part of the frustration is you can, I just kind of see these candidates as people who really don't know what they would do about K-12 education or higher ed. And plus, like, there's really not a lot that they can do. A lot of stuff does have to be 
tackled on the local and state level or the family level, right? Like K-12 education, one of the kind of difficult things about it is there's only so much a teacher in a good school can do, right? If a kid doesn't have, you know, proper family supports or people holding them to, you know, accountable and doing their homework and reading and stuff, that has huge impacts on their ability to be successful people further down the line. Um, so that's the difficult thing about education is I think politicians really don't have a lot of levers that they can pull to make everyone's education better. Now, it's, you know, why, and, and this is kind of like, you know, staying on the subject, but kind of like switching gears just a little bit. Why have we gotten to a point where there's so many teachers, uh, you know, grade school teachers and K through 12 teachers that are, you know, they're working with textbooks that are 15 years old. They're buying their own supplies. Mm-hmm. There's no money for any, for, you know, new supplies. And what, like, yeah. why have we gotten to a point where teachers who already don't make, you know, a high salary, they have to, you know, dole on stuff out of their own pocket just so they can function. How have we gotten to a point where it's been so neglected that is it to a point where it's so broken that we need a complete overhaul or is it just a few things need to be changed here and there? Like if you had, if you could wave your magic wand and say like, this is what I would do, what would you do? Um, I would, I, I think I would start with like the power that school districts have. Because the thing is, there is a lot of money going into our K-12 education system. It varies by state how much we're spending. But on actually most international measures, we are spending second. I think right now we're spending the second highest in the world per kid on education. And yet our achievement on math and reading is usually like middle of the pack for all the developed countries. Right. So we're spending a lot of money on education. But it's true that teachers, like having to seeing, you know, not not seeing their salaries go up for sometimes more than, uh, you know, at least the, the starting salary just in some states hasn't gone up in more than 10 years. Um, and they're digging into their pockets for their own pockets for school supplies or textbooks or, or lunch for kids or something like that. Um, there's a lot of culprits. One of them is um, just administrative staff load. So over the last couple of decades, you've seen the number number of administrative staff increase at significantly higher rates than you've seen enrollment increase. Um, So that's one big, you know, I guess money pit, whatever you would call it. I mean, it's just one place that we're spending a lot of money um, that where that makes it so that teachers can't get raises. Uh, I know another issue is like state pensions, right? So retirement funds for teachers, um, they're going um, broke. Right. And so when states are having to devote more and more dollars every year to just paying off their pension debt, um, that's, again, more money that you can't just give to teacher raises. Um, And then sometimes what some states will do is say, we're going to decrease class sizes. Right. So let's go from, you know, one teacher for every 20 kids to one teacher for every 17 kids. What you're really saying is you're going to hire a bunch of teachers and it's very expensive sometimes. And sometimes does even have discernible benefits for the learning of the kids. So, again, that's money that goes to hiring a lot more teachers that maybe could go instead to, you know, giving every teacher a $5,000 raise or giving them some kind of stipend for supplies. So, again, it's like where are you allocating the resources? Or, like, some districts are spending massive amounts of money on facilities, right, updating their facilities or athletics or so I think that districts need to just start playing a, like a would-you-rather game. Would you rather 
you know, decrease class sizes or get a $3,000 raise? Or would you rather, you know, uh, I don't know, get a bunch of new school buses or, again, get a raise or get a, a stipend for supplies? Um, there is money there, but the way these systems are arranged, um, the prior prioritizing who gets what and where the money should go becomes a really difficult uh, political puzzle. So, I mean, what I would want to do is, like, basically give schools the autonomy to run the way they want to, right? So say you have, you know, rather than having school districts, you have basically autonomous schools, somewhat like a, a charter school, right? And they can pay teachers what they want. They don't have to necessarily have, like, your standard state-of-the-art facilities, or maybe they don't have to have athletics. I mean, there's all sorts of options. Is, is it a very libertarian? Like is it a very libertarian view, like just giving the power to the schools and letting them delegate how they're going to use their funds? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think because you're getting more local at that point. Because I mean, school districts, for instance, like they have elected school boards, and those school board officials often have bad kind of political incentives. So you see school districts all the time spend lots and lots of money on technology, right? So if I'm a teacher working in a school district and I see a newly elected school board member doing a photo op because they bought every kid in the district, like, a personal MacBook or something like that, I'm thinking, well, what about, like, our teacher turnover problem, right? Why wouldn't we just start paying teachers more so we can retain teachers? These MacBooks, you know, or whatever, I mean, technology investments often don't actually have huge benefits for kids in these school districts, so... Yeah, I think you should localize that control. You could also localize it to the parent, right? Again, go to backpack funding where kids money follows kids to wherever they want to go to school, and those schools can decide whatever kind of cost structure they want to run. Um, and then you would actually have some kind of market forces making it so that the education is higher quality and you aren't directing money to all sorts of things that are ending up being a huge expense and pulling more and more dollars out of classrooms. And, and and that's a thing where it's almost like it's a revolving door of we can throw we can keep throwing more money into these schools, but if it's not being spent in the right places, it's basically like you know, you know, putting it down the drain. And it seems like there's so yeah. many so many spots, uh, you know, like like you said, like at universities, I, I'm still stunned by that 1.3 billion dollar a year on remedial courses stat. Yeah. Like that that was, uh, you know, it, there's so much more to the student. Uh, just education system, I would say crisis, you know, in air quotes, because everyone just thinks of the student mm -hmm. loan, you know, crisis, the student debt crisis. But in reality, it's, yeah. you know, it all starts at the K through 12 level. And yeah, just right. in our conversations, and from what I've seen, it's K through 12 always takes a back seat to the higher education, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's totally true. I mean, we, and again, going back to the spending point, we have massively increased spending. We've grown up by more than 200% over the last few decades on K-12 education per kid, and our achievement on these at least international tests has stayed relatively flat, wow. right? So we're talking about massive investments over years and years and years, and it's not that these investments don't help anybody. It's just that on the aggregate, like, increase, massive increases in spending aren't always seeing great results for the average kid. Um, so that's what, that's why I want to see more innovation. I mean, I want education can't be this one size fits all thing. Um, you need, you need education that is tailored to a kid's needs and it doesn't necessarily have to cost 
more and more money as time goes on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, K-12 education, we need a lot more um, innovation um, and just people thinking it's outside of the box. And I mean, think about like Khan Academy, right? Like how many kids have gotten like so much value out of just literally YouTubing you know, uh, these tutorials on doing calculus. That's what or, I was thinking too. Um, like there's so many people that teach things online. Why aren't there more? I mean, there's literally teachers that just volunteer yeah. and do that. Yeah, no, seriously. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, Khan, the guy who did that, I mean, was just making tutorials, I think for his like niece or something. And it, and these tutorials became massively popular online. And I'm telling you, like I studied for calc on Khan, with Khan Academy when I was in college and I'm just thinking like wow like I just got this on YouTube for free yeah. you know and, and then think about like all we live in an information age almost everybody has access to internet they have access to all this information you know it shouldn't be that education is just getting more and more expensive you know so I mean there's all these I think avenues that we have to explore to make education better absolutely but, um, hey, Christian, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for bearing with me for everything. And I uh, appreciate uh, you giving me the time to have this chat. And I'm um, looking forward to doing our part two on Just Arizona. Yeah, man. Sounds good. All right. All right, man. Have, have a great, have a good vacation, man. I'll speak soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.